So we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, and in the, the first four chapters of this letter written by the Apostle Paul, we see how the culture of the town was starting to influence the culture of the church. And in Corinth, it seems, you had to be really good at marketing yourself. What you needed as a speaker in terms of style was a witty turn of phrase. In terms of content, if the crowds were for it, you justified it. And if they were against it, you judged it. And in terms of thinking, often these basic middle school techniques were dressed up as if they were some deeply sophisticated, clever, new way of thought. Just like them, we live in a communication age that believes its content is profound, but has become every bit as superficial as it has become impatient, I think, at hearing people out. We have Snapchat and Instagram, this idea that we want our content now, straight away. Facebook, Twitter, it must be communicated in the most skin-deep and, and truncated of ways. TikTok, time is literally wasting away on these devices. We're literally killing time. And for all of the promises that these platforms would make us feel more connected than ever before, I think we've become more divided than ever before. With a device like the one I've got over there, uh, put it away, uh, but I'm, I'll be touching my pockets all the time, worried that I've lost it. Uh, with a device like that, you can reach hundreds of people, or in the case of Ben Hughes, millions of people all around the world with a click of a button. With the same click of that button, it only takes a second, though, to like the wrong thing or associate with the wrong person or say the wrong thing the wrong way, and then your platform will be removed, just like that. Understandably, the Corinthian people, living in a communication world like ours, expected their church leaders to know how to play this game, how to use this culture to their advantage to grow the church and they wanted their leaders their church leaders to show off indulge the in crowd judge the out crowd and then sound wiser than anyone else in the town preferably in 160 characters or less and today in about 2056 characters in the English language Paul says no I'm not going to play that game that is not what I am about Let's have a look together, shall we? Chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Now, there are so many different words for servant that he could have used, but this was about the most menial of them all. This was the lowest of the low. The, the Hooperates was an under-rower. They rowed a trireme ship on the lowest of the three decks lined up with a hundred guys just like them, all doing one thing. They were like cogs in a machine. These were the gears of war. And, and Paul adds to this image of the kind of lowest of the low, the word steward. And although steward is another form of servant, it's a very different kind of a word. The oikonomos, the steward, was the controller of a household. They sort of administrated an estate. Uh, in our context, just imagine, and it's, it's our context, just, 
But imagine the, the chief butler from Downton Abbey, and you have the sense of what an oikonomos is. A, a below deck downstairs kind of a person, but inevitably they were really in every room and they ran the whole thing. Professor David Garland reports an ancient document he translated in which a master commissioned an oikonomos with power to administer his estate, collect rents, arrange new leases, cultivate land, and transact business, quote, just as I can transact it when I am present. Jesus hands to his servants his own job. We're given his identity and his authority to do what Jesus would be doing if he were here. So if you're going to act for Jesus, you had better act like Jesus and not like a YouTuber, says Paul. What do you want in a steward? What do you want in the person running the thing for you? Well, you do not want a show-off who points to themselves. You don't want a panderer who indulges the in-crowd. You don't want a partisan who makes the out-crowd feel judged. You just want someone, verse 2, faithful, like Jesus. That's all you want. Verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It means trustworthy. What is it that the steward is entrusted with? What must he be faithful with? The mysteries of God. That's what Paul says in verse 1. They steward the mysteries of God. Now, when you hear the word mystery, I just wonder what comes up in your head. I mean, you, you hear the word mystery, maybe you think of something like a puzzle to be solved. Perhaps you think of the board game Clue, or, or those of you watching in the UK, Cluedo. And uh, I don't know why it's different, it just is. But uh, in pop culture, if I ask you a real question for you to answer, if I say the word mystery, think about TV shows, books, whatever, what comes to mind with the word mystery? What's the first association you have? Don't think of, go on. Go on. Murder. Excellent. Yes, murder. That is probably one of the first things, like Murder, She Wrote, something like that. Uh, for those of riper years, Agatha Christie, perhaps. Murder at the Vicarage. I just want to say I live in a rectory, <laughs> if you're tempted. I've been taking a home defense course as well, just so you know. Uh, Scooby-Doo, there's one. Uh, the kind of mystery machine, the idea that there's some kind of creepy thing going on and we're going to find out who done it at the end. Uh, that is what we think when we hear the word mystery, something like that, a thriller. But in Scripture, mystery is not a puzzle to be solved. Uh, rather, it is news that has already been revealed. In a few moments' time, when we're sharing communion, I'm going to say these words these words, we proclaim the mystery of faith. And spoiler alert, you're all going to say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. So it's not much of a mystery, is it? When we all reveal immediately with our first breath who done it. Uh, it's not that we're unaware of what happened, or even unaware of how the story ends. We know how the story ends. It is that we scarce can take it in. That's the mystery. It's that it's, it's too big. So great is the good news of Jesus' birth and death and resurrection in exchange for our sins that although we fully gain all the benefits of his work on the cross, the moment we believe, we will spend the rest of our earthly lives just seeing that it is even bigger than we at first believed. That's the mystery of faith. It is bigger than we hoped. Do you see here? 
Paul says the word mysteries, plural. That's a little unusual in Scripture. Normally it's mystery, singular, mysterion in Greek. And uh, I think what he means is that he's talking about here mysteries, not about multiple different Gospels, but rather about the Gospel and also all that it entails. The good news and what it does. Freedom and also what it feels like to be free. And power and what it works like to be empowered. And healing and what it looks like to be healed. He's talking about the good news and and also what it does. When we receive the good news, we do not need to promote ourselves and seek subscribers and followers. When we know that Christ takes us from despair and gives us hope by grace, we don't feel a need to show off. And how could we ever promote ourselves when we become aware of how much he demoted himself? Next, I think, to lampoon the Corinthian desire for a show-off with a great profile and a big following, Paul lowers himself even further. They wanted a showman. What they got, verse 9, was a spectacle. See how he's playing with words? A theatron. They wanted a a show-off. They got a theatron, a spectacle. They got someone to be made sport of, a bit of a buffoon, someone to ridicule, perhaps. Paul is clearly not there to ride on the culture of the town and get ahead. He's there to challenge the culture of the town, even if it makes him look silly. We are fools, verse 10. Blockheads. Weak in disrepute. We hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted. It means slapped around and homeless of no fixed abode. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The scum and the refuse, in the words of Professor David Wenham, was the residue and slimy scrapings of a soup pot that got stuck in the drain of a sink at the end of the washing up. Weirdly specific, I admit. But the image stuck with me. Someone said to me a while ago, I think they were mocking a bit, oh, you're the senior guy around here, are you? How should I address you? I said, call me scum. It's biblical. Scum, Alex. I think we should put that on my business card. I think we should put the font in a kind of greenish brown with stink lines coming off it, if we must. I'm trying to make you smile, just a little bit. But what an antidote it would be to the culture of our age if we were all just a little bit less serious about ourselves and a little bit more serious about the mystery of Jesus Christ. Now, if we fail to get this point, if we really fail to get that it really is not about us and it really is all about him, then four things will happen to us. It's the same four things that we see playing out in our culture today. None of them, by the way, are any good. First, making church about ourselves, Paul says, puffs up and splits up. He says this in verse 6. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. There are famous Christians who do great work, but it's a very specific calling. To be a famous, humble Christian is a a very specific thing indeed. And often I think the the celebrity pastor is tempted to become a peacock, a a show-off, not a steward. And the follower 
is tempted to kind of emulate them and uh, to, to, to gain kudos by how close they are, proximate they are to the big name. They start to dress like their pastor. Don't do that. And uh, they, they start to drop names. They live their kind of life vicariously through this famous person by reference to who we know and how famous they are. And, of course, the conversation always comes round to it as well. I go to this person's church. There's a flag. It's not that person's church, is it? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Whose church is it? You know, we're famous, you say. We're a big deal. We're doing really well. And that leads to point number two. What if someone comes into your church who is not doing well? In fact, what if they came into your church because they were broken? And they came because they hoped we could help. If we pretend everything is perfect and everyone here is perfect because the pastor is perfect and everyone looks like the pastor who is perfect, then inevitably someone will walk in through these doors and they will feel judged. And Paul says in verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment. Which leads to the third problem. When we boast or we judge, either way, we forget the gospel. We're not talking about the mystery anymore. Saints, we must learn, he says in verse 6, never to go beyond what is written. Never go beyond the mystery of the good news of Jesus Christ handed down in Scripture. The news that we're all sinners, we're all saved by grace, if and only if we turn to Christ and to Christ alone without distinction. Let us never forget that. As Paul says in verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast? point. Fourth, a puffed up and judgy church that has failed to steward the mysteries of the gospel is going to find it almost impossible to be honest. That ain't a church where you can come in and be honest. It's going to live in constant fear of being found out, isn't it? In constant, instead of constant hope of being redeemed, people are always going to be thinking, crumbs, everyone's so awesome in this church, they're so perfect. If I get found out, I'm done for. That's not a good place to be. I don't know if any of you has used the new self-check system at Giant Eagle, but uh, it has an interesting bug. I, I don't think it's a feature. I think it is a genuine bug. But so you take your bag of groceries and you scan the items, and obviously most of the times you scan them, it just goes beep. But then every now and then, and I don't know why, at random it seems, instead of going beep, it will announce the item that you just scanned. You know, beep, 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 one seedless cucumber. And you're like, that is weird. Beep, beep, one lemon. Place your lemon in the bagging area. And at this point, if you are a human, which you probably are, your mind will turn to all the other things that you have in your bag. And you will ask yourself, is there anything in there at all <laughs> that I would rather it did not announce? As your child has a tantrum, a meltdown on the floor, screaming, the last thing you want the machine to announce is, one enormous bag of sugar for your child. Place your enormous bag of sugar in the bagging area. And the excuses, of course, immediately begin. Well, no, normally we just give him saltines. You know, he's a good boy, really. 
then you get all inside your head, don't you? You start to think, well, how does this thing work? Is it, is it three beeps and then an announcement? Or does it escalate? Is it three beeps and then an announcement, then four beeps and an announcement? How does this work? Does it matter what day it is or the value of the item or how heavy it is? Does it work on the Fibonacci sequence? You've got to work it out, of course, because you know what's in the bag. And you do not want it to be announced. Headlights treatment oil. Place your headlights treatment oil in the bagging area. It's not mine, is it? Right? It's the reason why we don't call them scalp lice. Fungal toe cream. That's not mine, baby. Place your fungal toe cream. That's, it belongs to my wife. Just throw her under the bus. Anything to escape the shame. I actually found a website devoted to this phenomenon. There are thousands of Americans, apparently, deeply ashamed by what's in their bag and afraid of it being announced by a machine. And for many of us, the culture of the age has influenced the culture of the church. This is what the church has become, a great big spiritual game of what's in the bag. What if I'm found out? What a toxic place that is. Paul says in verse 5, do not pronounce judgment. It's very comforting. But he continues, before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Don't worry, he says, Jesus will go through your bag and then we'll all see what's in it. And uh, not just what's in it, but also why you put it there. Not exactly comforting, is it? But then he goes on to say the most extraordinary thing. Really wild. Quite mysterious, in fact. But, uh, it's the first of two good things that we'll find if we challenge the culture of the age. The first good thing. Jesus goes through the bag in front of everybody. Verse 5. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is so weird that uh, I thought it was actually a typo in my translation, that, that, that Jesus will examine everything that there is that you've ever done in front of everyone uh, and then commend us. I, I thought surely this, this should say condemnation instead of commendation. Because I know what's in my bag. I know it's not very commendable, what I got in there. I checked the original Greek. It does, in, it does indeed mean to Lord, extol, and sing praise. What an extraordinary thought that on the day of judgment, God himself will be singing hymns about you. What a thought that our opening hymn might have your name in it. What a thing. That with all the things I've done, I've done a lot of things or left undone. There's probably more of those through negligence, just whoops, weakness, kind of somewhere in between, and deliberate fault, totally planned. Somehow, my judgment day could result in a song of praise about me from my God. Especially as I did some of those things to him. That's the mystery, isn't it? That's the mystery of God. That's the mystery of the good news. <laughs> that God praised you and God sings about you. Isn't that great? That's the good news. That all, of course, the reason why he does this is because all of the shameful contents of my bag were paid for by Jesus. That as he lay exposed, practically naked on the cross, someone just 
dumped the contents of that bag at the foot of the cross, and everyone could see it all, and then they put a big arrow to it and said, actually, this is God's stuff for all to see. All those scandalous, shameful things were announced over Christ in my place. We are absolutely terrified of someone finding out that we have a spiritual fungal toe. And Jesus says, how about I wash those feet for you? Our master is a servant who lowers himself, lower than the lowest of the low, to lift you up. Church, we have to proclaim that. We have to preach it. We have to preach only that. That has to be what we do. That we point only to him and to him alone. And that's just the first good thing. The second is this. What does it do to a church that knows it? Mysteries, plural. To receive the mystery and then to experience the living out of it. What happens to a church like that? Uh, Kat said to me, she thinks it is the superficiality and the disconnectedness of our culture today and uh, our social networks that has led to the volume of boasting and judgment and divisiveness we see on our screens. You know, no one really knows anyone properly anymore. And so we present a sort of polished and curated image of ourselves to the world. And then uh, when someone is exposed or find out, we make sure we point it out as loudly as we can, lest the attention turn to us, like a middle school. In a church, though, Kat says, where everybody deeply knows everybody else, when they're around one table, when they're in small groups in each other's homes, where in fact the church is becoming just one body in Jesus Christ, well, we all know everybody's stuff. We care about it because it's our stuff. A church that's connected will find it easy to confess. And a church that finds it easy to confess will find grace. We do not dismiss the seriousness of the things in our bags. Rather, we proclaim the greater grace of the cross over them. 